Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hi, I'm designer Kevin Kidney, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week we take you in behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, musician, Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and lover of pop culture. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, uh, stunt double and uh, daredevil, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fantastic guest. We have Owen Clotty. Uh, who is an animator, both CG and stop motion, as well as a producer and director. And we're going to unpack his entire career and what's really going to be a two-part interview. So I want to welcome you, Owen, to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you. And, and, and you, can, you can hear our live studio audience going nuts for you. But oh, it, I know. I can see them all up there in the bleachers. <laughs> up, up in the cheap seats. They're, yeah. they're, and, they're in the box. So, they're in the box. Uh, Owen, I, you know, I, I know we're, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Nightmare Before Christmas, and it is October, so it is Nightmare Before Christmas time of year. Uh, but, but before we even get there, I, I, I always like to talk to our guests and find out how the heck did you get into this crazy world of stop motion animation? Because it really is a, a, a small fraternity or community of artists that are passionate about stop motion. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about your, your early years and influences? Yeah. Um, I, I got into stop motion basically because I can't draw. Um, and I wanted to be an animator. Um, and that came about really because a lot of people, of course, get into this industry because of a film they saw or Disney or, you know, Harryhausen or whatever. Um, I got into it because of the annual, annual uh, compilations of weird independent stuff that would play in the film festivals. And it would come around to the local uh, art theater here, the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee. And I just loved that amazing range of short independent things that were done. So it wasn't 
that I really wanted to get in the industry per se. I really just thought I'd want to do something with animation. It's the only thing that kind of really turned me on. I had had my, got my degree in architecture, but pretty quickly knew I didn't want to be an architect. Um, so I just kind of floated for a while and finally just thought, okay, somehow I got to try to be an animator and, uh, but not being able to draw it took, I worked in film labs for a while. We, I met my wife painting cells across from each other at the only little animation studio in Wisconsin. Um, we moved to San Francisco, worked in film labs some more and the big break and did a little bit of like uh, freelancing began to learn computer graphics in the early days. And then the big break was Gumby art cloaky um, set up shop in Sausalito across the bridge from San Francisco. And we went there applying, thinking maybe I'd get some kind of a assistant job and got hired as animators. And our first day we started producing animation that was going on TV. It was crazy. Let, let, let me ask you something though. Aside from those uh, short films, the compilations, and I'm sure a lot of those were film board of Canada films. Right. 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 You know, um, but were there any were there any feature films that you saw when you were a child or in high school that kind of struck a chord with you? Yeah, I mean, I had seen the Harryhausen films in particular. Those, of course, are great. The skeleton fight and everything is amazing. The Seventh um, Voyage of Sinbad right, and yeah, right. um, and King Kong. You know, all the things that were on TV in the '60s and '70s and. Um, I really liked uh, the effects in, um, I don't know, uh, Harryhausen's, uh, oh shoot, what was the one that came out in the 70s? Anyway, um, with the Medusa and that whole thing, that scene I thought was amazingly great. Um, right. Um, and then, you know, I liked Warner Brothers, I liked all that stuff, but I never really seriously considered stop motion. I'd done just a little bit of stuff in high school with a friend, like two very short little things, and never really gave it much thought. But it was just the amazing varieties of stuff that I liked. So um trying to think what else, you know, Star Wars hit, you know, and that was pretty great. Again, not a lot of stop motion, although, well, yeah, there was more than um, fair amount of that. And, 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 and Jason and the Argonauts. That was, that was the, the other Harryhausen in the early 60s, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, right. then you had Clash of the Titans that I grew up in. That's, That's right. Well, Cla Clash of the Clash Titans. Titans. Yeah, took me a minute. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, so those were all there in the mix. Um, but again, I wasn't thinking of it as a career exactly. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I just kind of kept thinking and somehow I'd get into it and then kept poking along doing, like I say, doing little volunteer things or whatever. And then Gumby came along and that was, that was. And, and when you started, when you started working for Art Cloakey and doing the Gumby series, that, that was, was that kind of like a boot camp for you? And I think it might've been a boot camp for a lot of the uh, contemporary stop motion animators, right? Oh, totally. Totally. That was an amazing project because art being the way he was and what he saw Gumby as, he wasn't looking for anything slick. He didn't care if you actually, I mean, my wife, Angie, had done basically two days worth of stop motion animation in her life. She was still taking class. She had, you know, done a little bit of her own and was taking classes at SF State in animation. And we had shot a little bit of stop motion in our kitchen. Uh, and then 
she got hired as an animator on a stop motion television show um, because Art would pick people who he just liked and who, you know, seemed like they might fit, you know. And, and, and it was a big part of it. I mean, it's it's like fitting into a crew of people, yeah. uh, ha- having a, a, the right disposition for stop motion because it really requires a lot of concentration and, and keeping track of a lot of uh, moving parts, so to speak. Oh, yeah. The concentration thing was really tough. I remember early on, I'd be working on it. And of course, this was before frame grabbers. We were using uh, surface gauges. This was 1987. Yeah. And frame grabbers had not been invented or thought of as far as I know yet. Can you explain explain to our listeners what uh, a frame grabber is? Sure. Um, they've developed a lot right now to the, a great degree now. They're great. But what it is basically is a computer system that allows you to, as you're shooting your frames off, it's storing them. And you can, at any point during the course of your shot, you can play back the shot up to that point. So you can see you get instant ongoing feedback about the shot as you're going through it. Because stop motion, because it's shot differently than other kinds of computer gra- of, of animation, computer graphics, or traditional cell animation, it's a performance. You start at frame one, and then you shoot frame two and three, and you go through the whole shot that way. And Essentially, um, you're going straight ahead. It's straight, straight ahead, ahead animation. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there's no keyframing and going back and in-betweening and that kind of stuff that the other kinds of animation do. So it is a very, very different process. And uh, it does require a level of concentration. Uh, it, well, without frame grabbers, with frame grabbers, it, that they've made animation much easier in a lot of ways and, and quicker to learn. People get good sooner because you're getting that continuous feedback instead of shooting something that might take hours or days to shoot and then sending it off to a film lab and then getting it back and seeing whether it is messed up or not. Um, but so it makes a big difference. But when I started, it was all surface gauges, which are just these, they're actually machinist tools. They're basically a little um, pointer on a, on a stand that you can set onto your set and have the pointer uh, up next to, say, some point on the, the puppet uh, uh, somewhere on the head or whatever. And then when you move the puppet, it gives you a visual three-dimensional reference of how far you've moved the puppet that frame. And you might, on a complicated thing, you might have several surface gauges on different parts of the puppet or on different characters within the scene. And uh, and you, because that's the only reference you have. So if you are doing something, as, as we found out quickly when we were starting out, if you've got multiple characters in a scene and each one is doing something and moving this arm, left arm and the right arm and doing something else. It's really hard to keep track of what all those body parts are doing. And, and uh, speaking of concentration, when, you know, we'd be shooting stuff. And if somebody came on your set and started talking, I'd turn around and then realize I totally forgot had I moved this character's arm, um, which way was I moving, you know, the body, Um, it took a lot of concentration to try to do that. So I just try to not to talk. And it was interesting after animating eight or 10 hours a day for about six months, I could carry on a conversation with people and still be able to keep track of everything in my mind. So (laughs) concentration was definitely a a, a skill that I developed. I had I had heard stories from other stop motion artists who would like to work, you know, in the middle of the night. 
you know, uh-huh. like, like, you know, uh, literally from like nine o'clock at night to like five in the morning because no one would be around. It would be dead silent and they would be so focused on what they were doing. Yeah. And that is preferable to not have people coming on your set, talking to you and stuff. Uh, you definitely, it, you get into a flow and you have to get into a flow. It is a, an ultra slow motion performance is the way I describe stop motion. And you, you, you know, so you're, you're in it. You have to get in the zone and, and really be feeling the flow of the characters, motions and stuff and what you're trying to convey. Um, so yeah, it's definitely better to really be focused and not have people interrupting you. How, how long did you work with Art Clokey on the Gumby series? Um, about a year and nine months, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was a really, it was absolutely boot camp. It was like the first things we turn out, and you can still see them online. They look like hammered, you know what? Um, some of the, the clay was we we'd had didn't figure out, hadn't learned yet how to keep the clay smooth and clean and make things, you know, nice. Um, but yeah, we were learning from each other so much every day in dailies because it was all shot on film. So we'd actually get dailies the next morning and everybody would sit there and watch what all the other animators would do. And I remember so many times um, just seeing somebody else do something really cool, like just Tim Hiddle, one of the other great uh, uh, nightmare animators. I just still distinctly remember a shot where he had uh, Gumby walking up to a telephone and he was going to dial a number, push button, dial phone. And instead of just having the character walk up to it and start hitting buttons, he had the character walk up to it and then stop and think for a moment because he was remembering what the phone number was. And then he started hitting the buttons. And it was just that little bit of like adding a bit of character that wasn't called for in the boards or anything, but he brought thinking to the character and, 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 you know, really made the character come alive in a way that just impressed me. And it's like, Oh, you can do that. You know? And it was a great learning experience, just learning from each other every day for a year and a half. And how, how was art cloaky? Because I I've heard stories that there was sort of two distinct arts. There was art and there was Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I well, I'm not actually sure what you mean by that. I I didn't we didn't interact a lot. He wasn't around. He'd come on the sets once in a while or whatever, but he wasn't like and he'd be watching dailies and stuff. I don't remember getting a lot of feedback. Most of our day to day interaction was with uh, Dave Blyman, the line producer and Ken Pontac, the art director. Okay. Um, But art was always really nice. And, you know, we all thought he was, you know, kind of a little old school at the time because he that, you know, the original Gumby thing had been 20 some years before. Um, so and we were trying to do something, take things to a little bit different level. Yeah. Um, but he was always nice to me. And, and you know, there were a certain amount of political issues and stuff, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I actually don't know what what people would be saying. OK. Um, Arthur well, I, I convey a little bit of a story about that, uh, yeah. the two arts, uh, in, in my upcoming book on the nightmare before Christmas. Ah. So I'll leave, I'll leave it there. I'm going to leave it as a hanging, uh, a little, a hanging Chad for people. So, so from, from the, uh, uh, the Gumby series, uh, where did you go next? Um, unemployment 
for a while, but we, the year after Gumby, I think we ended up working like two or three months out of the year. Uh, it took a while. We were still, you know, that was our our main, uh, you know, our job for a while, but there wasn't like there was a lot of stop motion going on. It took a while to develop connections and, and we started, the next things we did, I think, were uh, commercials at Colossal Studios in San Francisco. Yeah, and then Colossal um, was a big... Uh, commercial facility that did right. an awful lot of stop motion. I mean, yeah. they, they were known for their Pillsbury Doughboy uh, right. uh, commercials. That they, there was a whole series of those. I mean, they're still doing them today, but now they're doing them CG. Right, right. Yeah, I did. Uh, I think three stop Doughboy commercials. My wife did two or three. Um, um, yeah, they, they were constantly cranking those out, and some of those were directed by Henry Selick. Uh, and other directors there. And then I worked on Henry directed the first two uh, Ritz Bits crackers commercials. There was mm -hmm. one for cheese and one with peanut butter. So I worked on those with him. That's some of the early stuff that I did with Henry. Um, but in a lot of other commercials. Yeah. And Colossal also did the, uh, the, the famous California raisin commercials. Mm, Didn't no. they? No, that was at Vinton Studios up in Portland. Oh, you're right. You're right. That was Will Vinton. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever work over at Will Vinton? I never did. No. no. Okay. No. I met people afterwards. Never have gone up there actually. Um, did you yeah, work? And I know, I know, uh, Henry at Colossal was also doing the MTV uh, interstitials. Did you have any work on those? No, I remember the day Henry came into Gumby looking for animators and uh, he chose like uh, Anthony Scott and I think Tim Hiddle and Eric Layton and maybe uh, Trey Thomas. I forget who exactly did those. Um, I didn't get in on those, but so my first time with Henry, I think was on the Ritz Bits commercial. Um, but yeah, so, that, well, that's the thing about Gumby. That was an amazing training ground, not just for me coming in with essentially no experience, but, Tim Hiddle, who came out from Indiana for the job, and then Trey and Mike Belzer and and uh, Anthony and and Eric. This that was a and Angie, my wife. That was a core group of people who went on from Gumby to to do Nightmare and a bunch of other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and from those commercials, uh, when did you go on to Nightmare? Well, Nightmare started shooting in ninety one, I think, early yeah. ninety one. So there was you know like three or four years of commercials and uh pilots for things that we worked on uh ken pontak and dave blyman did a pilot for uh a show they were trying to pitch called the danger team and we worked on a little promo thing for that and then ended up going and working in la on the pilot for that show which did not get picked up um but there, so there was various things again more commercials i'm trying to think of what else was in there but anyway nightmare started shooting in uh, oh, and then Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions was somewhere in there about 1990, I think it was. Or and and, and who did that? Who, who that was Henry Selick's. That, that's Henry's baby, right? Yeah, he was. It was supposed. To, it was a little five minute or however long uh, short that he was kind of hoping to develop into a, a series for MTV. Um, so that was you know. So Eric and Trey and I did the animation on that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm curious when when you're working on those smaller projects, are you really doing multiple sort of wearing multiple hats uh, or are you just coming in as the animator? Is there, you know, are there other people building the sets and all of those kinds of things? 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of a one trick pony. I really could only animate. I've never got into any significant amount of puppet fabrication or set building or any of that stuff. I would just come in and animate. Um, probably to, to the detriment detriment of my career a little bit if I had, <laughs> had more a varied more varied skills, but I did okay with just. But, but some of the other animators did have multiple skills, right? I mean, as far as wearing multiple hats. Somewhat, although most of the bigger projects, you know, you're basically just animating. I mean, I know, right. I think Meg Belzer had made some, done some work in making armatures and, you know, uh, one guy from Gumby who was an animator ended up, Lionel Orozco ended up getting into making armatures, ball and socket armatures. And, but in all the, you know, and, yeah, on smaller productions, sure, they like it if you can do multiple things, I guess. But mostly I find, I don't know, stop motion because there's so many specialized skills that need to happen. I'm going to make a very broad statement that maybe it's easier to find generalists in computer graphics than in stop motion. I don't know. I I, yeah, no, and you know, something I wouldn't disagree with that. I think live, I, I, I think stop motion is much more like live action. You know yeah. where where you're going to have uh, uh, set designers and and carpenters and you know plasterers and you know lighting guys and camera people. You know everybody's got that specialty, so it is a lot more like live action. But I would also say that that's true on the features, whereas on smaller commercials or or oddball shorts or things, there's a a, a propensity for people to wear multiple hats. Yeah, I'm. I, it's probably true. And like I say, though, I never really learned that stuff enough to be able to, you know, I mean, I think we helped out a little bit on a couple smaller projects with, you know, puppet fabrication or something, but nothing significant. Yeah. 98% yeah. of my time, I was just animating yeah and, and when when you uh um uh when you were doing some of those smaller projects when was it that uh like you know did henry call you up did he come visit you did he drop by you know uh to you know did he go to the local bar where all the stop motion animators were hanging out <laughs> well he came to gumby and that was his first time he you know it was the only other stop motion production in the area and he it was very smart of him to go there and and pick his pick the best animators out of that group um because yeah where else do you find stop motion animators there really isn't any other you know group back then i mean there was no other productions going on so henry really just by being henry and pulling together this team well art pulled together the team and then henry you know Rated it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, waited till then the thing was done. I mean, I guess the first MTV uh, things were done while Gumby was going on. People worked on the weekends or something on that. But, but yeah. it, you know, he just would, once he had our names and knew us, then it was a core group that he was able to then just kind of call up and say, hey, I've got something new to work on. Do you want to work on it? it and your first day uh, on Nightmare Before Christmas was was that when they were still at the Tippett Studio, using some space at at the Phil Tippett Studio? No, no. I started. Um, I think I, on the market. Well, the South of Market Studio, uh, Skellington Productions. Uh, they had already set up shop there. Uh, Trey Thomas started the shot, the first shot um, of the film. 
that was the that, was that the test shot that uh, Eric worked on as well? Well, no, the first shot that actually ended up in the film. Oh, okay, the first the first production the first production scene. Right. right because prior to that prior to that there was the test scene, right? The proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you're right. I think that was done at Tippett. Um and I yeah, so I got hired probably I think I was the third. Let's see. When I came in, Trey and Mike Belzer at least were already shooting I'm not sure if Anthony or Tim was pretty, I got in pretty early, but anyway. Yeah. And, and, uh, and just, just so our listeners know, uh, when they were first starting to put this movie together, they were doing a proof of concept. That was the first thing that the studio sort of greenlit and funded was a proof of concept scene and Henry Selleck actually storyboarded the scene. It's, it's right after Jack got shot out of the sky in the movie and he mm-hmm. lands in the arms of the, uh, the angel tombstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, uh, Henry boarded that and, uh, it was, uh, Eric Layton, who I believe did the animation for that test shot, which really basically sold the movie. You yeah. know, I mean, they it, it was exactly what it was supposed to do. It was a proof of concept. They proved the concept out that they could do something uh, really well. And from there, uh, the movie got funded. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. Eric would have done the early animation. Um, he was pretty much a brilliant animator is and um i wasn't in at that early stage i do remember when henry first called us the number of us uh to come in and look at the tim burton's drawings when he first told us about it henry had a studio down on third street and came to his studio for that and just i remember being blown away by the drawings tim burton's drawings of jack and sally and and the mayor and everybody and just I'd never been struck by character designs like that before. So were you, were you at all apprehensive by any of the designs? Were you looking at some of them going, how are they going to do those skinny legs of Jack Skellington or anything like that? Or were you totally, yeah, you you are. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We were all like, I don't know how they can make an armature that would hold up that the ankles would be strong enough to this really top heavy character, you know, the upper body and the head and all that stuff and have those tiny, tiny, long skin legs, skinny legs, uh, holding it up and and being able to animate well and keep them. And and by the way, those proved to be a problem in the early iterations of the Skellington puppet, uh, because Tim wanted them to be very, very skinny at the bottom, but Mm -hmm. it just wasn't practical for what they were trying to do and for the materials. Um, and, and so they actually had to thicken them up a little bit. Okay. I actually, you know, more of yeah. this than I do. Um, I wrote the book. I wrote the book, Owen. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just remember by the time I got on it, they yeah. worked. Yeah. And, uh, but, but there was some trial and error before that. I and, believe. uh, and, and I think that that was, uh, uh, part of the, um, the, sort of the magic of those puppets, you know, yeah. is, is that they were doing some things that normally you would look at and go, Oh no, no, we, I don't think we could do that, but they, they were able to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they had an amazing group of people working on these things, you know, um, Chris Rand and all the armature guys yeah. solving those kinds of problems and, 
And then, you know, animators that were good enough to be able to figure out how do you animate characters with these incredibly long skinny legs? And then how do you animate characters like the corpse family with these tiny little stubby legs, you know, and and make those look good. And um, yeah, it's just, it was, every day was an adventure basically. What what was the, what was the first shot that, that Henry assigned to you uh, when, when you came to the Skellington Productions facility which by the way was a big warehouse on vanessa avenue vanessa avenue in san francisco that had uh uh it, it was storing jaguar cars for a jaguar dealership when they first found it and and the way they got that building was they uh, tom schumacher talked to the uh jaguar dealership and they said fine you want that building find us another building we can put those cars in and they did the realtor that they were working with found another building and the jaguar dealership moved all the cars out of it and then they went in and converted uh they converted the building into essentially a a giant soundstage that was divided up into small sets yeah um well it wasn't van s it was on seventh but um seventh or yeah i think it was on seventh or ninth but um anyway um yeah it was just a big warehouse that yeah they divided up and um um the first shot i got onto was um it was in what's this it was the shot of uh the little elves throwing snowballs and the camera and jack goes over and pulls the lights down in front of his eyes as he's singing um, and I, uh, had to redo it, <laughs> you know, you try not to redo shots. which is unusual, right? Because, because you don't want to do retakes and stop motion. So right. there were very, very few retakes, right? Right. Right. But of course, you know, everybody cuts you some slack on your very first shot. And especially since, you know, one thing I've found that people do a lot of times in stop motion is they give they do the complicated shots, the big complicated shots first, which doesn't make some sense. There are reasons for that, but it, it's harder on the animator. But anyway, that one was a fairly complicated shot. But anyway, so I, I, it turned out pretty well, but not well enough. So I had to reshoot that one. But other than that, uh, there weren't was that the only Was that the only retake you had to do? <sighs> Possibly. I'm trying to think if there was another one. You had a very, very small shooting ratio. I mean, basically, there weren't many retakes. Yeah. yeah. There there were shots I probably would have liked to reshoot, but uh, overall, we couldn't afford to. We were just trying to bang them out. So, uh, And at that point, we were good enough that we were able to make it good enough and and keep moving forward. And and just the the process of getting to the final shot you there were there were some other iterations you would do can you talk about that totally yeah that's the thing because stop motion is a performance you really have to know what what you're doing before you start if you want to get that final one to be right so we would commonly like a common way of work a week would work is say you come in on a monday morning uh you have you're assigned a shot uh you talk to the director to find out what he wants um and you spend the day kind of roughly thinking, you know, listening to the to the music or the dialogue or what it is, whatever sound you're going to be animating to. And while the camera crew is setting up the set and lighting it and kind of getting their rough lighting done. And on the first day on a Monday, so 
you might not get onto the set to actually start shooting any tests until six or seven at night. Um, and you shoot a, what's called a pop through. You just shoot, you know, a few key positions that you want to have the character hit in during the course of the shot in the next, so the next morning in dailies, uh, or you talk to Henry about, you know, the basic positions and all that. And he'll give feedback on, okay, these are make this faster in there, or, you know, you've learned something by doing the pop through. So you can talk to Henry and say, I think we don't have enough time for this. Can I do this instead? So there's this back and forth and figuring out what the character's going to do. And at the same time, the lighting guys are getting uh, their feedback from the DP, Pete Kazachik. So they spend the day relighting or tweaking, you know, kind of fleshing out the lighting. So on the second day, I wouldn't get on until at least two or three in the afternoon, probably, and be able to do a somewhat more, uh, do a test of maybe on fours or something. And then commonly on, the, you know, on Wednesday, you see the dailies and everybody gets a little bit more feedback and, and I might get on the set at 10 o'clock if the lighting guys can get their tweaks done by 10 and I'd get a, a, a whole shot test on twos on say Wednesday and kind of, and if everything looks good and dailies on Thursday morning, they launch you on the shot. And by that time, the lighting's done and, and the, uh, I've gotten my exposure sheets all uh, kind of really worked out so that that's when you launch on the shot and shoot the whole thing on ones. And it might, you know, take two or three days. So I'd shoot Thursday, Friday, Saturday, if need be to finish the shot. So that is pretty typical. And and so, so there were, three or four sort of pop through iterations before you did your final two or three, usually not two or four, three. Two, two or three. Or, okay. Yeah. So, so then the fourth would be the third or fourth was actually doing the final shot. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then was that a nail biter for a couple of days until the film came back? And you oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Especially if something went a little screwy in the middle, like something, your character isn't hitting the mark at the right point, or you have to, whatever happens or a light goes out and they have to, you have to stop and have the light replaced and hope that the, and then there's a whole process of trying to balance that light because the old bulb might not look exactly like the new one. So if you don't want a light pop in the middle of the shot, they have to go through all this stuff to try to make sure that's as seamless as possible. And yeah, so that's stop motion is just uh, what I always talk about it being just psychologically and physically demanding much more so than computer graphics and, and draining. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, and, and I it, mean, you know, you, you, you finally have that, that release, if you will, once you get the shot, the final shot back and it's approved in dailies, you kind of like, <sighs> Oh yeah. You, know, you, you, so you really let out a sigh. Like, Oh my gosh, I can relax for two seconds before I start the process all yeah. over again on the next shot. Right. Well, yeah. We'd always talk about in dailies, you're the hero or a zero. Right. If, <laughs> if the shot turns out well, everybody applauds. And that's like a great feeling, you know, and then Henry says, yep, what great, buy it. And, uh, um, and if not, if there's that awkward silence, because you know, it didn't turn out well, and or Henry says, well, pretty good, but, you know, whatever, then there's that it's, it's very, very, uh, 
you know, difficult psychologically sometimes, <laughs> uh, especially if you've been working on something for a shot that wasn't two days, but a week or two weeks, which is not normal, but uh, happened. Um, so that would be really tough. And especially, as I say, if you thought there was a problem in the middle and you just don't know and you you just have to plow ahead because if it's in the middle of the shot, do you make that decision to just stop and say, I, I think it's messed up. I have to go back because, OK, so on, on Nightmare, we did have very early frame grabbers, but they could only grab two frames of animation. So we were always seeing two grabbed frames and our live frame, and there'd be like a little switch and a dial. And we got this little pattern of going flip, 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 turn the dial, flip, flip, turn the dial. And that's how we could see two frames grabbed and the live frame. So you could always kind of see a little bit of what you had done just to see if, is that arm moving in the right direction that I, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. So there was a little bit of frame grabber uh, uh, technology to help us on that project, which helped hugely to make Nightmare better than the average thing that had been done up to that time. Right. And, and also, I mean, uh, we have to say that today with the digital technology, you, you can see an entire scene Right back, back, you know everything you shot up to a particular point, you can just continue to watch the scene as it's progressing. Right, you don't have the surprises that we had then, so you don't have that same level of of angst of you know did I mess something up in the middle of the shot? Well, now I can just look at it and say, yeah, it's good or it's not, and I can continue. And, and that's what's really contributed to the slickness, if you will, of. Uh, some of the films coming out uh of um uh portland right like uh, like and, uh, and the other uh, where where they almost i mean some of those films almost look cg absolutely they're, they're, the the movement is so smooth yeah oh absolutely i think um I, I I almost don't like it. I mean, I uh, they're amazingly done. Amazingly yeah, no, they're they're beautiful films. But I know but what I you're saying. It, it does I, yeah. lose a little of that tactile, hands-on. The hand, the touch. handmade, the handmade quality. Right. I, I yeah. like that in stop motion. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, you'd have to talk to Henry about this. I think that my understanding is that uh, on Coraline, which to my mind, I still think is the best thing that like has done because I um, personal opinion, um, he wouldn't. And, and you, and by the way, you didn't work on that. No, no, no. Okay. Um, no, uh, but they, Henry wouldn't let them add motion blur to the animation. So it has that staccato stop motion look to it that they, and they add motion blur to all their other CG stuff or their yeah. other stop motion stuff now, which makes it look more fluid and computery. Um, and I, I think there's something lost in doing that. I mean, I agree. Oh. I absolutely agree with you. And, and uh, you know, I, again, I, I, there was a, there was a Leica film that came out a couple of years ago. Um, Kube and the, Kubo and the two strings. Kubo and the two strings. That's it. And that was so incredibly well done. Yeah. I mean, such a beautiful movie, but yeah. it, it looked, it looked CG. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it looked to me like it was um, uh, absolutely, you know, done as a CG film. And, right. and that, and that was, 
to me, a little bit disappointing because, as you mentioned, it takes it takes away that handmade tactile quality that the earlier stop motion films and TV shows have in them. Right, right. Um, you know, going back to Art Cloakey, he would always talk about how what he thought made Gumby and stop motion in general, I guess, popular and is that it is visceral. You feel it on a visceral level, even children can tell there's something different there because it's real, because it's tactile and whether, and that that just makes a connection to the viewer that is different than anything else. And that, I, that it's a real inanimate object that's come to life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that so, is what I love about stop motion is just anything can be animated. Anything can come to life. Yeah. Um, let, let me, let me ask you on, on nightmare. What was the, uh, you know, do do you have a particular memory of something that was just nerve wracking, funny, crazy, like over the top shot that you had to do that you were just so glad to have gotten through? Or is there any one thing that sort of stands out uh, above all the others? Um, boy, I'm trying to think. Nothing that leaps to mind. There are little things like working on a film called The Nightmare Before Christmas and finding myself working at 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve to try to finish a shot. Um, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, got it done. Turned out. But um, and there were plenty that were, you know, difficult. Um, it was, I still say the nightmare was the toughest job I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was pretty long hours and we were all pushing ourselves and stretching ourselves. It was our first feature. Most of the people, most of the animators at least had never done a feature before we'd, you know, and, um, most of the camera crew, well, I guess a lot of the camera crew had come from ILM and everything, but anyway, most of the animators didn't really have that kind of high end. We had done a lot of real good commercial work, um, but it was a first feature and everybody knew it was cool. Nobody had any idea it was going to turn out to be what it has ended up being this classic and all that, but we knew it was cool. So the pressure was on and, and, and we we're, but we were all also excited and enjoyed stretching and trying to figure out how to do these things. Um, so no, offhand, I can't think of one shot that was, that really, really pushed. What, was the, was there one shot in the movie that you looked at in awe that maybe you didn't have yes. anything to do with, but you, you just sat there and said, my God, look at what they did. Yes. The, I think the single best animated shot in the movie was done by Trey Thomas. It's the shot of um, it's during making Christmas when Jack is, is kind of, Oh, well, I forget. I think it was the, um, the characters holding up this bat and Jack's talking about how um, it's much too, you know, he's going to make a hat out of the bat or whatever. And, but it's kind of rotten. He says, Oh, it's much too uh, something fresher. Anyway, there's just, these beautiful things, the way the bat is animated, just the, all the characters, like three or four characters in the shot. And Trey just nailed it, just absolutely nailed it. It just sparkles to my mind. It's just everything moves perfectly. And, uh, and you you feel the characters thinking, anticipating yeah. something that they're going to do or say. 
There, yeah. There's just those fractions of a moment where you feel that the character's alive and they're thinking. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's just, like I say, it just sparkles. It's just like, there's no, it's just alive. It's just beautifully done. Um, what about what about some of the big crowd scenes? Uh-huh. Um, as I'm far just, as I'm what? just curious, mm-hmm. like, you know, as far as trying to keep track of, you know, if you had 10 or 15 characters, you know, I, I think of some of those town square scenes in the movie where there's all these different characters. I mean, it would, I mean, it would drive anybody nuts. Right. Well, that's, that was uh, that main right near the beginning and the camera pulls back. So you see, it's the one time I think you see the whole crowd like every character every puppet in the movie was in that shot i think there was something like 50 characters in the shot and that was done by three animators so each one had to take like 15 or more characters and and keep track of them yeah so each yeah and so that was i'm sure very difficult um just because not only do you have to kind of do all your own characters and everything you have to be working with other animators and waiting for them to finish so kind of really hard to get a flow going if you're constantly having to interact you know wait for other people or whatever so i i never liked working on on shots with more than one animator it's always better to to just do all the characters in the scene yourself if you can and were most were, were most of the shots in nightmare done that way where an animator was sort of sequestered in their own you know little stage area and they just created their shot Absolutely. Yeah. Even if you've got three or five or six characters, you're doing all the characters for that shot, Um, which I think is way preferable. Uh, Like I say, it's just, it it just, it's the only way to get into a flow and really be able to concentrate and kind of really make everything, all the interactions, right. Everything. I mean, there are just times when there's just for various production reasons or just because there's just too many characters. Like I had to work on a shot, some of the shots on the town hall when Jack is handing out, uh, assignments and there were characters in the background lining up to come onto the stage to get their assignments and I had there was another Steve Buckley animated those while I was animating the characters in the foreground because it would have been a lot of walking back and forth and just yeah. you know, I think there were 10 characters or something I could have done that but it was more efficient I guess to do it but it nothing to say about Steve. It was just, I don't like working with another animator I'd rather have control of everything in the scene. And that's right. how it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Not the way that the traditional Disney stuff is done in those cases. That's one of the real cool differences about stop motion compared to traditional animation is each character in a Disney movie has a lead who does that character only and then, you know, if there's two main characters talking, as I understand it, it's two different animators are animating and they have to coordinate how they animate. But you don't animate both characters. You animate your character because so much of it is about being able to draw that character so beautifully in three dimensions. Stop motion, you don't have to worry about that. You just have to make the the acting be consistent with what the other animators are doing. So yeah. you don't have to try to redraw it every frame perfectly. Right. Um, I'm going to, I want to ask you um, a lot more about nightmare and uh, there, there's some issues with the air conditioning in the studio, which they didn't think was going to be a problem, but turned out to be a problem, but I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger because we're bumping up against time. And I, I want to, I want to just let our listeners know, we're going to continue our conversation with Owen next week. 
So come back for part two. And Owen, we're going to send you back down the hall to the green room to sleep for the next week uh, until we do that interview. Okay. Okay. I'll go get a nap. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see you in a week. Thank you. Okay. Thank you guys. See you later. Skull Rock Podcast, your weekly dose of pixie dust. And once again, everybody, it's so glad that you have tagged along for the ride. Once again, loving Disney and pop culture. Be sure to send us those emails, Dave or Al John at SkullRockPodcast.com. You can also check us out on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, we're on you know, Apple Podcast and Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Sorcerer Radio Network, and Tuned In, and uh, Live 365. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Stitcher Radio, be sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we post things there all the time, so uh, be sure you check it out, and we would definitely love to hear from you. There's also a listener feedback in the show notes. There's a number you can call and you can actually send us your voicemails. I'd like to encourage that because we want to hear from you, not only in email form, but also your voice so we can play it on a future episode. Um, I also like to thank our listeners and our shout outs and uh, thank Sure Microphones as well. Going to drop them a little little plug as well. Dave? Absolutely, because you sound extraordinary. Oh, thanks. Sure Microphones. We sound amazing. It's so good. You really do. Thank you so Uh, much. (laughs) Well, as always, everybody, peace and love. Uh, Go out and have a fantastic uh, week. Uh, If you get a chance, uh, stop by davidbossert.com. You can see some of my artwork uh, that just got put up on the site. Uh, And uh, also a bunch of uh, animation articles that I've written over the years. If if you're interested, uh, it's all no charge, obviously, uh, and it's all available for those interested in animation and Disney history and all of that. Uh, Go out, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. Podcast.